0: Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Please join me in Lamentations chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find that on page uh, 685. Um, and if you're not using those, but for any reason could use some help finding Lamentations, if you were in Ezekiel when we were just reading it, you just flip a book over to the left and you'll find Lamentations there. It's just after Jeremiah. Sandwiched in between Jeremiah and Lamentations, you can find this little, tiny book in the Old Testament, Lamentations. If you're in the Psalms, keep going to the right. If you're in the Prophets, you've got to go to the left a bit. The title of our sermon this morning is Lonely City, and the key words for our worshipers in training are sorrow, judgment, and exile. Uh, Ferenc Visky, I think is how you say his name, he was a minister in the Hungarian Reformed Church in Romania, and in 1958 he was sentenced to 22 years in prison on trumped-up charges of sedition against the um, communist regime. His wife and their seven children were also convicted and sent to a prison camp in another part of the country. And in his short little book, The Foolishness of God, which is a collection of, uh, I knew I wasn't going to say this word right, so reminiscences, there we go, memories from his years in prison. Uh, He writes this, in prison, I learned to laugh. In prison I learned to laugh. In Jeremiah 39 and Jeremiah 52 you can read about Zedekiah, the wicked king of Judah, who reigned in Jerusalem 11 years, and how he provoked Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to lay siege to Jerusalem for 2 years until they finally breached the city and sent the Judean army to flight. This was, of course, many years before uh, Vizky was in prison. This was around the year 586 B.C., so about what 2,500 years ago, almost 3,000 years ago. Zedekiah was eventually captured, though he fled. He was condemned, and the last thing that he saw before having his eyes put out was the execution of every one of his sons. He then spent the rest of his life in prison. Following this gruesome display of power and judgment, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the Babylonian bodyguard, burned the city. He burned it to the ground. He killed many. He carried away some into exile, and he left the poorest to be vinedressers and plowmen there in Judah. Previously to this, in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, twenty-nine, we read about the blessings that God would bestow upon Israel for their obedience to the covenant that He had cut with them at the Mount Sinai. And we read about the curses that He would enact upon them for any disobedience. And so for hundreds of years, from Sinai to uh, the exile in 586, Uh, God warned his people through his prophets that if they did not stop their relentless sinning and their disregard for his law, he would eventually cast them into judgment. Uh, About 140 years prior to the Babylonian invasion, God had brought judgment upon the ten northern tribes, the ten northern kingdoms of Israel, uh, through the Assyrian invasion in 722. The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, uh, they thought, kind of in the light of this, they thought that they were were untouchable, right? They were the promised line of David. And yet, as they continued to sin grievously against the Lord, uh, he eventually did, in 586, uh, nearly bring them to an outright end as he brought the threatened curses of Deuteronomy upon them. Well, this brings us to to Lamentations chapter to 1. Chapter 1. To lament is to express sorrow and anguish of heart in light of suffering. Lamentations, while officially anonymous, is generally thought to have been penned by the prophet Jeremiah, which is why they stuck it sort of as an appendix to Jeremiah right afterward in our in our English Bibles. They thought to have occurred right after the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. Again, 586 B.C. And uh, it's thought, it expresses the hurt of the suffering that he and the people of Israel endured along, though only briefly, also along with the hope of salvation. Now the truth is, it's difficult to be dogmatic about the authorship of the book since it is officially written anonymously. Um, it's hard to say with, that, with certainty that Jeremiah wrote it. Um, there's good reasons to think that he did, some reasons to think that he didn't. And so generally, I will, I'm just going to refrain from using Jeremiah's name when quoting the book, probably just referring to the author or the poet. But um, you can sort of assume behind that that I probably mean Jeremiah. But just for clarity, we'll just refer to the author um, anonymously. Lamentations is a book for today. It's a book for us because, let's face it, we live in a broken world. This is a book dedicated to giving a voice to the most awful pain imaginable. Hurricanes, oppressive governments, viruses, broken marriages, sick children, corrupt employers, authoritarian pastors, backstabbing friends, you name it, the world's got it. And yet, in this broken world, through our suffering in it, we can, as Visky put it, learn to laugh. And that isn't a kind of a glib phrase of just merely finding humor in dark places, but ultimately of finding joy. And this is what the Book of Lamentations teaches us. Sadly, however, lamentations, I think is one of the most neglected books of the Bible. In what will be admittedly a rather extended introduction here, I want to note a few things that I think might conspire against you, against us, to keep us from reading and studying this book. And then I want to note a few reasons why we should, nevertheless, drink deeply from its fount. And then we'll really close the sermon this morning by looking at the first three verses of the book, introducing some of the main themes and, and giving a cursory, cursory look at these texts to revisit um, at in some level next week. So three issues that keep us from the book are its content, its age, and its form. Its content, its age, and its form. One reason that Christians today, particularly those of us in the West, are so unfamiliar with the book of Lamentations is that the West, we here in the West, have lived in extreme comfort for a very long time, generally speaking. And so we have simply not collectively felt the need to lament much of anything. And frankly, the sustained and unrelenting depictions of sin, sorrow, and judgment that you find in this book are quite upsetting to many of us. Not feeling the weight of suffering in the world as many have had to do, we find lamentations difficult to engage and easy to ignore. So that's... Um, that's the first thing, right? It's, it's, um, it's content. The content of the book itself is off-putting. Um, but not just because we have it easy. It's also upsetting because of the self-reliant tendency that the Western world, especially the American world, Has. The American dream, right, teaches us that there is no limit to the comforts and pleasures that we can enjoy, so long as we work hard enough to reach them. Therefore, the neediness that is expressed in this book, the neediness that underlies every phrase in this book, is uncomfortable to self made Americans. So, in other words, those two things. Form the, the problems with the content. Because of the experiences of sustained comfort and individualistic determination that we have, we find the book, like Lamentations, to be unnecessary for us at best and outright offensive to us at worst, since it majors on extreme suffering and desperate neediness. Two words that are frankly anathema in 21st century America. Well, second issue is the book's age. It was written about 2,500 years ago, and, and that's, just, that's just a really long time. Like, a really long time ago, this book was written. I mean, that's true of the Bible in, in, in its full, but in the Old Testament especially, these, these words were penned a long time ago. You know, we just finished our series through First Timothy, which... It was also written a long time ago. But is it, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between 1st century Ephesus and 1st century A.D. Ephesus and 6th century B.C. Jerusalem. It's 500 years there. But there's also a covenantal shift that's taken place. Right? The New Testament may be old, but at least it's written from a post-crossed post Resurrection, post ascension perspective. The gap between what was going on then and what's going on here is pretty wide. And so the difference between us and the, the audience in 1 Timothy and the difference between us and the audience in Lamentations is vastly different. And so the, the age and the cultural differences of the book make it so that we struggle to see its relevance for us often. So it's the second thing, it's age. A third issue that keeps us from the book is the form of the book or, or the structure of the book. And there are two points that I want to make here. First, the author employs multiple characters to carry on a conversation throughout this book. Now, it's not always easy, especially if you don't know that that's happening. It's not easy to discern who is speaking when. It takes work. I mean, have you ever noticed that there are quotation marks around some verses and not quotation marks around others. You can see uh, in verse 12 of chapter 1, there begins a series of quotes that someone else, other than the narrator, is speaking. And not knowing this makes it a little tricky to navigate. And even when you do know this, it's not always easy to know who is speaking and, and when because we don't it's not written out like a script in a movie or something where the name of the person is speaking is marked off. But if you do sit with the book long enough and you are guided a bit in it, you can see a conversation between at least two different voices emerge. In the first two chapters, the poet introduces himself as a narrator, and the city of Jerusalem is personified as this weeping woman. Lady Zion, we will call her. And she really only speaks in chapters 1 and 2. Her speech, we see, as I just mentioned, is marked off by quotations beginning in verse 12 and is interspersed with the voice of the narrator until she finally falls silent in chapter 2, verse 22. In chapter 3, the narrator then takes upon himself the identity of Jerusalem and speaks uh, sort of this internal monologue. He speaks with himself, but then he, he, he engages with the people of Jerusalem and, in a sense, with God. And then in chapter 4, this suffering man talks about the sorrows of his people and allows them to speak for themselves, only briefly. Chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. He calls them, <coughs> he calls them to rejoice and to hope at the end of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, the poet leads the people in a corporate prayer where only their voice is heard. Like I said, these conversations can be easy to miss, especially if we're not paying attention. And so we often miss the flow of the book. So that's one issue with its form, is the way the book flows in this conversational uh, nature. But there's a second issue, and this one may—is probably even a bigger bigger deal— Uh, The second issue regarding the form or the structure of the book um, is that it is not immediately discernible to any non-Hebrew reading Americans how the book is actually structured as Hebrew poetry. So it's five Hebrew poems put together to form this one book, and we miss entirely in our English Bibles what the author did, because we don't read Hebrew. In our English Bibles, there's nothing immediately striking about the poetry of this book. Right? In English poetry, you know, we certainly, we really just care about if it rhymes or not. But it's very, very, very easy to rhyme in Hebrew. You just stick different endings on words, they all sound the same pretty much. So rhyming isn't really a thing, but the way a poem is structured is much more prominent there. Now, we're not going to recognize that here because of our English limitations. But this wouldn't have been the case for the Hebrews, for the audience of the poet, right? And the most obvious form of poetry that he employs here, and if you've studied the book of Lamentations at all, you know that it's an acrostic. This means that as the five poems of the book unfold, with one exception, each poem unfolds using successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Here's what I mean. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Do you see how in every chapter there are 22 verses? Chapter 1 has 22 verses. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Now chapter 3 has 66 verses, but that's a multiple of 22, and we'll get back to that in a minute. Chapter 4 has 22 verses. Chapter 5 has 22 verses. This is not a coincidence. In chapter 1 and 2, there are 22 three-line stanzas. Where the first line of each stanza begins with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in English, that would mean that 1 1 would start with the letter A, 1 2 would start with the letter B, 1 3 would start with the letter C, and so on. Chapter 2 repeats this pattern. Now, chapter 3 also repeats this pattern, but it just has three times as many um, lines in each stanza starting with that letter. So chapter three is actually the same length as chapters one and two. So one, two, and three are all the same length. But in chapter three, um, he he has chap- verse. It's three. Verse one is starts with a a a, right? And then the three lines in verse two are b b b. Or it'd be the Hebrew letters, but I think you get it. I know this is tedious, but it's going somewhere. So just hang with me. In chapter 4, there are two lines uh, per letter, and it's just the first of the lines that begins with the, the letter of the alphabet. So instead of 3, right? So it's 4-1 begins with A, 4-2 begins with B, and so on. Then in chapter 5, oddly enough, he writes 22 lines, but he abandons the acrostic altogether. So why does this matter? The structure often tells you much about the meaning, especially when you're dealing with Hebrew poetry. Now, the structure of Lamentations, what I'm saying, is something that, because of its initial inaccessibility to us, it steers many modern readers away from the book. And so we need to grasp, at least at an elementary level, the form of the book... And ask why. Why does the author use an acrostic here? And why does he do it in the way that he does? Because it's not just that every you know every poem is just an acrostic, but the first two are an acrostic in one sense, and then there's a heightening of the acrostic in chapter three, and then in, in chapter four it seems to diminish a bit and then falls apart completely at the end in chapter five. So why? Well the truth is it is impossible to say with absolute certainty. Why? But it's likely that he is intending. He like I heard one commentator said. Well, he just he couldn't fin- Like he couldn't keep up the, the, the poetic structure. He just fell apart at the end. He's like, I give up. I don't think that's what happened here. I think that the author is intending to convey a message to us. The acrostic form of four out of five poems conveys a sense of completeness. But there's an asymmetry to the poems that helps us to feel the uneasiness of the subject, to feel the agony of the present pain in living in this fallen world. It's as if the author is saying, here's the A to Z of suffering in all of the discomfort it brings. And you are going to feel that in the flow of these poems. Right? Chapters 1 through 3 build to the climax of the book, which is chapter 3, verses 22 through 33, which is certainly the most hopeful part of the book. Using this heightened form of the acrostic, every single line is involved in the acrostic. But then in chapter 4, we we realize that even with the expected hope that we will get to in chapter 3, we've gotten to hope, right? The Lord's mercies are new every morning, the Lord is my portion. We go back to, chapter four, to, back to chapter 4 to remember and realize that even with this expected hope, pain is still real. The author is telling you there is a reality. Because when you get to the content of chapter 4 as well, you really feel it. While we're clinging to hope, we still have to remember that there is pain and agony to be experienced in this life. And then in chapter 4 and chapter 5 it just the form falls apart altogether and it's there is a reality to suffering that doesn't make sense there isn't an orderliness to it So in other words the author gives us oral and visual cues to help the listener grasp his meaning Like I said sadly for for English readers listeners we we miss these cues but that's why we can be grateful for good scholarship that helps bring these things to light so that we can grasp this letter, this letter, sorry, this, these poems better, and that we can, be, we can benefit from, from its reading. And so uh, I hope that sets that up a bit uh, in terms of why the form might be off-putting, but why it's important, and we'll, we'll do the best we can to navigate it as we go through. And, and so then, broadly, those are the things that keep us from engaging fully with this book. It's, remember, it's content, it's age, and it's form. But we should work hard to overcome these reservations, to bridge the gap, because, as we said, it is a book that has much to say to us in the present day. So I want to consider briefly uh, a few things regarding, uh, a few reasons why we should seek to benefit from this book, why we should study this book, why I would take a few months to preach through this book, and then we'll, we'll introduce the actual content of the first three verses, and then we'll be done. So one benefit to studying the book of Lamentations is that it connects us to our fellow heirs of grace from over two millennia ago. Our present age, our present day, is one that focuses nearly exclusively on, on what is new and young. Old people and old things are largely ignored in the 21st century West. Tradition and connections with the past are rejected and purposefully forgotten. To engage with a book like Lamentations, and certainly to study any book of the Bible at all, but certainly to engage with the book like Lamentations is to rebel against the present-day tendencies and remind ourselves that we do not live and love God in a vacuum. We stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, and we live, we have gotten to this point, coming in a long line of faithful believers who have gone before us. Christianity didn't sprout up last night. And reading Lamentations will help us to remember that. Well, second benefit we can derive from this book is that it offers a depth and a sturdiness to us as it regards our way of speaking and praying that I think is missing in many churches today. We like what's new, we like what's young, we like what's easy, what's soft and shallow. The American church has mostly been spared agony and suffering. Now, individuals or individual churches certainly have experienced it, and it's certainly possible that in days ahead we will have it by the the bucketfuls, right? Right? And so whether it's you individually that suffering is coming for or us collectively as RBC or the church in the West as a whole, whatever it is, we need to enrich our vocabulary when we speak about pain. We need to learn how to express anguish, fear, sorrow, and hope in deeper, richer ways and lamentations As few other places in Scripture, uh, it offers just that. Perhaps in in pointed ways that you can't find anywhere else in the Bible. So it, 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 it it enriches our vocabulary. It deepens our vocabulary. But a third thing, it also deepens our theological convictions. This isn't just a way of speaking. Christopher Wright summarizes a key question from Lamentations in his commentary, In this way, he says, How can the ultimate extremes of suffering be endured alongside faith in the living God whom we have learned from the Scriptures and in experience to be all-loving and good? Right? So the extremes of suffering that we face in this world, that we read about in this book, how can we endure those and hold on to those as a reality alongside our faith in the living God whom the Scriptures tell us over and over and over again is good, merciful, patient, long-suffering, and gracious. Now, theologically, we understand that man is sinful and we deserve God's wrath. Period. Right? We, we can check that off on the test. But practically or or functionally, the pain that we experience in this fallen world, it still hurts. You might know that you deserve it, but it doesn't change the fact that it hurts. And the question, therefore, of God's goodness is inescapable in this wounded world. And Lamentations helps us to wrestle with that question. Lamentations emboldens us to plumb the depths of suffering while fully trusting in the faithfulness of God. And so, despite its difficulties, we should work to commune with God through this book as it strengthens our connection with the saints of the past, enriches our vocabulary when we speak about, and more importantly, in the midst of suffering, and it deepens our theological convictions, especially concerning the goodness, justice, and faithfulness of God. So with that very long introduction now complete, I want to take the time that remains and open up again, in a rather introductory fashion the first three verses of this book. Let me read them now. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. Or perhaps better, Judah has gone into affliction, uh, under gone into exile under affliction and hard servitude. She now dwells among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So there are three things that I want you to notice with me, and we'll just we'll pick one thing from each of these verses. Uh, we'll note it to, to open up the book for us, and then we'll we'll do it. Um, We'll dive in um, next week. Uh, So the first thing is that in verse 1, we see the horrifying condition of the city. Second, in verse 2, we will see the agonizing response of the city. And third, in verse 3, we'll see the surprising identity of the city. Uh, If I were to summarize these verses in one sentence, uh, I'd say something like this. The author calls us to a somber consideration of the great reversals that God brought upon His people because of their sin. We are considering the great reversals that God brought about because of the sin of His people. So the first place, verse 1, we see the horrifying condition of the city. And and here there are three notable descriptions of the city's um, pitiable condition. And here we see three reversals that have been brought upon her. The bustling city has become what? Desolate. Right? The full city now empty. The great nation has become poor. The princess has become a slave. There is a horrific reality that the poet requires us to grapple with here. There has been for these people a great reversal those who had fortunes right they were fortunate before and they you could describe them as full great and they had grandeur coming out their ears right they have now been reduced to empty isolation and slavery and immediately the import of this book is present for us it's thrust upon us This, my dear friends, is the ultimate effect of sin on the world. Sin offers to you fullness, greatness, and power. But it delivers emptiness, loneliness, and slavery. This is what sin brings upon all who fall into its trap. And so, ask yourself this question this morning. What sin or sins are you flirting with Believing its lies. What sin are you most prone to fall prey to its schemes? Think on it. Hold it in your mind. Own it. Think, think specifically here. Right? Don't, don't think generally. Think specifically. Don't cast your mind about. Think of your sin that you are most prone to. To fall into its trap. Pretty uncomfortable. That's what this book offers. But not just to think about your sin. But to think about the Savior of sinners. But we'll get there. Right, this, this book is about sin. It's, it, it helps us to lament suffering in general. But it was written... "...as a response to judgment that came in response to sin. The city is lonely because of her sin. The Great One has been reduced to widowhood because of her sin. The princess has become a slave because of her sin. And so while these things can happen to us apart from our sin, in this case, for these people, it was sin. And so friends, let us be warned. There is a judgment for sin that is coming." So ask yourself, will you be condemned? So that's the, that's the first point, the horrifying condition of the city and these great reversals. We see in the second place in verse 2, the agonizing response of the city. We're told she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. And and we see even more reversals here, right? She she lies alone despite being surrounded by her lovers. She is comfortless and and at enmity with those she once called friend. Right? And so sin brings about reversals. And what do these reversals bring about? Bitter weeping in isolation. You, You might be wondering... Uh, Pastor, how do you know that this is a result of sin? Well, verse 2 drops the hint. The woman sits alone while among all her lovers. All. This phrase, word all, when we work through chapter 1 over the next few weeks, we're going to see this word all over and over again. Here we see it the first time. All her lovers. Adultery is a metaphor often used to depict idolatry. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Consider what we read in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 2-3. through 3. The Lord says to his people, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. God had redeemed and married his people, and yet they, we are told in Jeremiah 2.32, they had forgotten God days without number. So this personified woman, right, she had turned from the Lord, had forgotten her bridal attire, chased after other lovers, and so ends up widowed, surrounded by merciless lovers who refuse to comfort her. And so again, think. Think on your sin that clings so closely to you. Are you prepared to weep bitterly at the destruction it shall bring upon you? Are you prepared to lay among your sins with none to comfort you completely alone on the final day? Are you prepared for the heartache that shall come when these things with which you are at one point so amicable, are you prepared for when they desert you? I told you they were quick. Third point. Verse 3. Notice with me. The surprising identity of the city. Now, if, if you open the book, the, the Lonely City, it's not really a shock at this point. You know who he's talking about. But there is a sense in which there is a surprise here. There is a shock here. Who is it that sits lonely on her hill? Who has become like a widow and a slave? Who weeps bitterly in the night without comfort or friend? God's people. Judah. Judah. Specifically, the city is Jerusalem itself. Judah and her capital have been sent into exile under affliction and hard servitude. It is Judah who has no resting place. It is Judah who has been overtaken by her pursuers. This same Judah concerning whom Jacob prophesied in Genesis 49, that Judah... The same Judah about whom it was said, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who, doubt, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This Judah. One and the same. Now, as we will see, and as our living proof here in 2022, God does not go back on his promise. He does not obliterate Judah outright, but he does reduce his rebellious people to ashes. He reduces them nearly to nothing as he brings the covenant curses upon his unfaithful bride. But with, and he did so after repeated warnings, warning after warning after warning. But even after all these warnings that God gave to Israel, that God gave to Judah, doesn't it still surprise us just a little bit that they are the ones on the receiving end of God's fury? Now, we would expect Egypt, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Philistia, or some other pagan nation, but not Judah. Not the people of God. Not the line of David. So let this be a warning to The church. God sets up and removes lampstands. God establishes churches and removes them. And He certainly builds up and tears down nations. And so the West and churches in the West should be warned and beware. But that brings us to an important point with which we will close. While we must beware the consequences of sin, we must also remember that for those who have looked to the sufferer of sufferers, to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no wrath to fear. You will suffer, and things in this life may get really bad, even unbearable, in your own strength. But you, my dear Christian, will never receive an ounce of the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus bore it for you. Jesus, followed by crowds and multitudes, the ruler of the nations, died alone. Jesus, king of the world, died alone a servant. Jesus wept over Lazarus, over Jerusalem. He wept in the garden. On the cross, Jesus was comforted by none. His closest friend, His Father in Heaven, had become His enemy. Jesus was exiled on the cross. He was denied rest, for which He longed, and was overtaken by those who pursued Him. Ultimately, the words of Lamentations are from, we'll say, Jeremiah. And they are our words, but before any of that, they are the words of Christ who became sin to redeem His people from the penalty of their sin. So the, the lonely one was the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the bitterly weeping one was the Lord Jesus Christ. The one in exile with no resting place was the Lord Jesus Christ. But that wasn't it. That wasn't the end. For after He underwent these sufferings, He came out glorified to reign forever and to bring us to Himself. The experience of God's people in the exile, right? It's just a foreshadowing of what happened to Christ on the cross. And for them, for God's true people, for all who put their trust in Messiah, their return from exile after this is but a foreshadowing of the new creation into which God's people now enter with and in Christ Jesus. And so, are you stricken by sin? There is hope. Look up. Look up. Look to Jesus Christ who died for sinners like you. And perhaps... My prayer, my hope, as we enter into this book in the next few months, it will probably take us through the rest of this year. So if you're not depressed yet, wait for it. But as we journey through this book together, let us perhaps, by God's grace, learn to laugh in the midst of great sorrow and sufferings, whatever form, whatever time, for however long. Amen.